little babies here. Lionel Lamb does a few things well, and having children is definitely right up there, which is great. Let me share uh, briefly a story from World Magazine. This was just uh, came out in the last week. This is from an event two weeks ago this last Saturday, so November 12th. There was a small group of missionaries from North Carolina. They were in southwest Montana at the time. And their means of evangelism is basically walking, walking across the country, carrying a cross, and on the cross are the words in one spot, are you ready? And the other phrase is repent or perish. It was a cold, snowy day. They were on the roads there, and their support vehicle had pulled off the road uh, on the side where another road was coming through, and as the walkers were approaching their support uh, vehicle, a local uh, parked and complained about where their vehicle was parked, even though it wasn't blocking anyone from accessing the road. He became highly aggressive, swearing at them. He eventually assaulted one of their members before the others of the mission group subdued him. Uh, both the aggressor and the mission group both called 911 to report the incident. The local assured them he knew the sheriff and that they would be going to jail. And that's exactly what happened. The group was arrested at gunpoint, handcuffed, and moved to separate jails. Four of them are facing charges for aggravated assault. They've been required to wear and pay for ankle monitors after being required to post bail. They face up to 20 years in prison. One of their number said, They've all had opportunities to share Christ with people they were in jail with, people they would never have met had God not put them there. The head of their group called Full Proof Gospel, Reverend Brandon Gwaltney's closing comment on this incident was, God is sovereign. So they say, uh, we had opportunities to share the gospel with people we would never have met because of what God did. The head of their group says God is sovereign. In the midst of totally unexpected circumstances, and you can imagine, this is just another day for these guys. And their lives are turned upside down in an unexpected moment. But they're saying God is in control. When we say God is sovereign, what we're going to be talking about today when we say God is sovereign, it's a big theological term, right? And it covers everything in life. And God's sovereign means that God is so fully in control actively, and sometimes you could say passively or by allowance, that everything in all places, at all times, and all people, whether they intend to or not, are ultimately serving God's purposes and ends. That's God's sovereignty. And this morning we're going to be talking about God's sovereignty from the lens of God being in control. And, and by that I mean what we'll look at in Acts this morning are incidences in which it's clear that God is advancing the narrative. God's advancing the action that's occurring in the book of Acts. So we say big picture God is sovereign, but specifically this morning we're going to look at that from this, this thought that God is in control and he's in control by way of advancing what's going on. So we're going to use five different uh, topics we'll cover going through a selected section of Acts, a number of different passages. But what we want to see is 
if you say God is sovereign and life is good, that holds one thought for you maybe. But if the bottom falls out, do you still say God is sovereign and does that remain a good thing? And when we're in the book of Acts, we're looking at in some ways things that are a little exceptional because you say, well, this was the beginning of the church and God's getting everything off on the right track that he wants. And so you, you might say, Mike, that's a little different than my life. But what we're really saying through the passages this morning is this. God's the author of all that's going on. He's the author. He's writing the story that you're living. And you don't necessarily know what he's up to in the moment when you're making decisions or when you're praying. You don't know what that's going to look like. But God does. And so even if we say, well, my life doesn't look like the book of Acts, and there's some remarkable passages we'll look at, and you might say, that's never going to happen in my life. That's okay. We're not saying that God's work in our life looks exactly the way it did in these, but these give that ability to sort of, like the Wizard of Oz, the curtain gets pulled back, and you see that there's a guy back there, and he's controlling everything you see in here. God's controlling everything we see in here and all that's going on in your life and around your life and on the world today, whether it looks good or bad in the moment or not, God really is in control and he's really sovereign and he's really in control of your life and mine. He's really sovereign in the days that we live and the days that we occupy. But what Acts does is it gives us some access to see where God is specifically, because the text tells us, that God is advancing the narrative, that he's the author and the story's going exactly where he wants it to. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. We saw this, oh, one, maybe the second lesson in this series, <clears throat> and we will conclude the selected uh, passages and messages out of Acts this morning. You remember back in Acts 2, Peter said two things about Jesus' rejection, betrayal, crucifixion. He said, on one hand, this is exactly what God purposed. But on the other hand, he accused them of murdering Jesus effectively. This is Acts 2.23. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is what God planned all along. But he still says, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. You weren't trying to advance God's cause, but you were. God's cause was still being brought fully to bear through people who didn't intend to have anything to do with that. Remember we also said the book of Acts, it started with this phrase, all that Jesus began to do and teach out of the Gospels. Luke wrote a Gospel, right? And he wrote Acts. So he said Jesus began some things back there in the Gospel account, but that means that the inference was he's continuing them today. And so the thought is Jesus is still at work in the world today, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit through his followers. Jesus is still at work in the world today. The Father, if you will, is writing the story. Jesus is still present in the world by his Spirit. The power is the Spirit's. But he's doing that through people, through you and I primarily, through Christians, through believers. This morning we're concluding, we really want to come together over this thing about God being in control five broad categories and again it's not that your life will look like the things the stories the elements we see necessarily but this is the example of this is showing God's advancing the narrative God's writing your story in mind if you have your Bible what we're going to flip around um, 
we're sort of following an order here, but we're going to flip around through a number of passages in Acts. So they're on your study sheet, and hopefully you can follow along. Uh, starting with Acts 2, the first point that we're saying as far as God being in control is that God is the initiator. Uh, the story of, of uh, the, the planet, the, the, the history of the world is being written by God. He's initiating the key elements that are coming to bear on us today as well. So in Acts 2, you remember in Acts 1, Jesus had said, hey guys, stay in Jerusalem. Stay together and the, and the promise of the Father is going to come. And, and so they're, they're doing what they know to do in Acts 2. They stayed in Jerusalem and they're hanging out together and they're praying. And then in Acts 2, we read, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what are the disciples doing and what did they do to make this happen? They're, they're where Jesus told them to be. They're, they're praying, but they have no control over what happened on Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit of God comes down like a wind. <clears throat> Excuse me like a wind and like tongues of fire. They have no control over this, right? And then they just start simultaneously speaking about God's praises because the Spirit is moving them to do so in languages they didn't learn. And we say, God is in control. They didn't bring this to pass. Nothing they did had anything to do with God coming in and starting what we call the new age of the Spirit or the age of the church. This was God advancing His agenda they're doing what they know to do. They did what Jesus said. They stayed in Jerusalem. But this is the Holy Spirit of God coming in and bringing about God's will. God is in control. They're not. And suddenly they're instruments of God because God is bringing this to pass. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not because they're special. <clears throat> not because they had a great plan or they had a great purpose. This is God fully in control initiating his new plan. The apostles prayed and they waited and the Spirit came. The disciples were acted on by God because God was in control. If you shift to Acts 10, this is a little bit along the same line, but it's to a different group. And the story in Acts 10 <clears throat> is about Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a God-fearing Gentile. He believes in Yahweh. Thank you. He believes in Yahweh. He prays to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. He's a godly Gentile. And guys, one day he's just living life, okay? He's living life on the coast, Mediterranean coast, says He's living his life. He's doing what he always does. And out of nowhere, just like the beginning chapters of Luke, where an angel shows up to Zechariah in the temple, he's just, Cornelius is going about his day and an angel shows up out of nowhere. He has nothing to say, nothing to do about this. And the angel says, Cornelius, God's remembered your prayers and your offerings, and you're to send for a guy named Pete. He's down the coast. You send some guys down there. You tell them to come up and see you and talk to you. And so Cornelius obeys, just like the disciples did. And he sends some folks down to Peter. And simultaneously, Peter's having a vision. And in the vision, God's telling him, don't you call unclean anything I've said is clean, whether that's food animals or people so even though he normally wouldn't have pete follows these guys back to cornelius's household now guys in this story cornelius has no idea what's going on 
He just knows an angel showed up and told me to do something. I did it. Peter has no idea what's going on. He just says, God showed me that I'm supposed to go with these guys. So I'm doing what God told me to do. And this is what happens in Acts 10. This is starting at verse 44. So Pete shows up. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what's going on. So he just starts talking. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. This is God in control. This is God writing the story. This is God advancing the narrative because he is in control. These guys have nothing to do with what was happening. They just did what God told them to do with no expectation of what was coming from this. God was sovereignly bringing about his desire and his plan. God had chosen Cornelius and his household as the first Gentiles. And this was a pivotal point in the book of Acts. You know, you see or you remember Jesus said, you'll witness for me to Judea, to Judah, excuse me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then he said the other parts of the earth. But you see in the story of Acts, you get Jerusalem and Judea, and then you get Samaria in Acts 8, the Samaritans who aren't full Jews, they're a despised group. They get the spirit, and then in Acts 10, Cornelius does. So God is writing the script, and he's deciding who gets the spirit and when. He's directing all of this. Psalm 135, verse 5 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever God wants, he does. Job 42, 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is always about his design. He's writing the script for the story that we live out. Sometimes the Lord will give you and me things to do. And you may not know what this is connected to. Have you ever had the impression God has said, go someplace or stay someplace or give to this person or pray for that person? And you may have no additional information. You may not know what's going on. But you should still obey what you know, trusting that God's in control and whatever he ordains to come out of that that's what will happen whether we fully grasp all the incidentals in the moment or not it's God who begins his own works of grace and God who finishes them it's God who raises up nations and establishes their duration and boundaries that's Acts 17 26 when you and I read stories of war in Ukraine Acts 17 says it's God who establishes the boundaries of nations if a boundary changes it's not without God's sovereign control God's the one who says he's responsible not only for the time that nations and empires exist, but for the very geography that they inhabit as well. It's God who opens the door of opportunity and closes them. Uh, that's a promise to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3.8. God says, I've opened a door for you and no one can close it. I've given you opportunity. No one can take that away. We may be anxious for one stage of life to begin or end. We may be confused as to why it's taking so long for God to answer a prayer. But the Spirit is never late, always on time, and God keeping God's good plans on track. So God's initiating. Whatever's going on in your life, God's the one that's advancing the story of your life. The second point is that it's God who's saving. God who is saving. So God initiates and God saves. In Acts 2.39, back on the day of Pentecost, when Peter's explaining to them that what you're hearing, all these people 
praising God in all this variety of languages, he says, this is Joel. And this is the promise that God had said in the Old Testament that he would give the Spirit. He'd pour out his Spirit. And when Peter said, who gets that promise? Who gets the promise of the Spirit that he's bringing up from Joel? He says, the promise is for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now remember, the Spirit is in believers. Galatians and Romans are clear on this. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not saved by definition. Those who have the Spirit are saved. They belong to Christ. Who gets the Spirit? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The thought there is they've been summoned by God. It's like an appointment. God says, I have an appointment, and I have an appointment with you on this day and at this time. I've summoned you, and you're going to get my Spirit. In Acts 2.47, in the very early days of the church, uh, Luke records, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God added to the number of believers day by day. There's a passage in 1 Peter that describes the church as a building, and the building is composed of stones. And Peter says the stones are alive, that in that portion of Scripture, individual believers are described as living stones. And the picture here is that God is picking up stones and adding them into this structure that is the church. It's God's that, that is adding to the believers day by day, Acts 2.47. Uh, in Acts 11:18, this is a good passage for most of us who are Gentiles, Gentile backgrounds. Uh, Peter went back to Jerusalem after Cornelius' house, and the Jews in Jerusalem were not happy with him because they're still getting all this figured out about we're Jews, Jesus is our Messiah, we get that, but we're keeping the law, and they don't know how to think or how to react or how to respond to Gentiles who are coming to faith. So Peter has to defend himself with the thing with the household of Cornelius, he's got to defend himself and say, look, all I did was what God said, and this is what happened. Well, they conclude, when they hear it, they're like, okay, well, God's in charge, and God did what God was going to do. They conclude, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has done something now that he hadn't done before. <clears throat> Excuse me. God has granted, God has made a decision, God has given something now in time that he hadn't given before. And what he's given is repentance to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And then what you see, of course, over time is the church of Jesus today and through most of history has been primarily Gentiles. Jews are still the rare exception of those who are in the church today, those who embrace Jesus ethnically tied to them but not their spiritual head. There's very few believing Jews in the world today compared to Gentiles. So that was pivotal, and they recognized it. They said God's doing something. He's done something. He's given repentance to a group that he hadn't, at least in that way, before. In Acts 13, Paul and his companions were in the city. This is verses 47 and 48. They were in the city of Antioch in south-central Turkey. And Paul would always preach to Jews first. When he went into a new city, if there was any Jewish population there, he always preached to the Jews first. They had been in that covenant with God. It was a courtesy at least, right? 
God's changed things, and you need to be aware of that. You've been in a relationship, a covenant with God. There's a new covenant. You need to hear about that first. Well, the Jews typically would reject it, but in this city, the Gentiles heard Paul say that Christ and the gospel was now for them, that they weren't excluded. They didn't have to become God-fearers anymore, that the gospel was for them. Verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That word again means ordained. God ordained those who were appointed to eternal life believed. In Acts 16, verse 14, this was in the city of Philippi, it says, uh, Paul's preaching there along the river, and it says, the Lord, uh, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to, and the, the text there uh, in the ESV says, it, uh, pay attention to what uh, Paul was saying. Pay attention means she believed because she's then baptized. So she hears Paul, and it says, the Lord opened her heart. So God sovereignly moves on this Gentile woman, and she believes the gospel and is baptized. And this, this image of God opening something is a big deal in Scripture. So we had a Sunday school lesson today out of the book of Ruth. And if you remember chapter 4, it says that Yahweh gave Ruth ability to conceive. Yahweh opened her womb. If you read the stories, the narratives in Genesis, <clears throat> there's this thought that God opens or closes a woman's ability to conceive. The language is God opens or doesn't open. You get in that passage in Revelation 3, there's this thought, and this is also out of the Old Testament, out of Isaiah. There's also the thought that life is like a door and God opens some doors and he doesn't open other doors. That God is in control of these circumstances. God ultimately takes responsibility for conception or lack of conception, or opportunities you thought would come along, and then the door closes in your face. You think you're going to go about and do something, and suddenly you realize the opportunity I thought was there isn't. God opens and God closes. And here it's the thought that God opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. We talked about this too in the short summer series, Amazing Grace, that, that it's God who's doing the seeking. Uh, there's a passage, you know, John's gospel was written. John 20, 31 says that he wrote his gospel so that you'd hear about Jesus, you'd believe in Jesus, and you'd be saved. But John's gospel also has this other thought Acts corresponds with. John 6, 44 says, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is a, this is a strong word. This has to do with the thought of being pulled or drug. Uh, when I've explained this before, um, if you talk to someone, they say, I made a decision for Christ, I, I came to faith or whatever, and you say, how does, how does that human responsibility and that divine sovereignty, how do those operate? And you're like, well, it is a little bit of a conundrum, but here's an example. If I um, had a group, uh, a herd of wild horses, I could drive that herd of wild horses towards my corral. But while I did it too, I could make sure that some made it in, whether all of them did or not, I could drive it so some made it in. 
Now, the horses that ended up in the corral, they'd tell you, I ran into the corral. But the cowboy driving them would say, I drove them into the, into the corral. You see what I'm saying? It's a little bit of a conundrum, but God says that's the way this thing works. God's actually actively pulling people into his kingdom. If all you knew uh, about humanity was Romans 1, 2, and the first half of Romans 3, so Gentiles are hopeless and without God, Jews are without God, and Romans 3 sums it all up, there's none righteous, no, not one, there's none who does good, and there's none who seeks God. Now, if you knew that was humanity, and I told you, go save people, how much hope would you have for sharing Christ's gospel? I would have that much hope, right? But if you say, oh no, and, and this really goes to Luke 8, this is the parable Jesus told about the sower and the seed. If you knew that even though these people are all obstinate, and no one is going to suddenly develop a good heart and say, oh, I love God, and this is what I've been waiting to hear, but if you know, oh no, God's actively at work, so that I get to be a sower and I get to throw seed out indiscriminately. And I know this, I know this, I know that some of the gospel-centered conversations, some of the conversations I have with others about Christ, some of those will bear fruit. That some people will come to faith. That's going to happen. So that's what we want to do. We can have, and we should have, we should have as many gospel-centered, Christ-focused conversations with people that don't know Christ as we can and we do so knowing that God is going to be at work and some of those folks are going to come to faith. And guys, it's not because we're articulate. It's not because we're smart. It's not because they're better than other people. It's because God is sovereignly drawing. God is bringing them in. And that's a good thing too. Guys, we don't try and figure out God's sovereignty. You know, in the Wizard of Oz, usually when you get to the wizard's, uh, I don't know even what to call it, you know, the curtain is closed, right? The guy pulling the strings and making his voice big, the curtain is closed. It's only occasionally that the curtain gets parted and you get to see what's going on behind. God doesn't tell us all about his sovereignty, right? So there's things I don't worry about. I know God has said some things. He said them clearly, and that's what I, I hold. So when we invite others to believe in Christ, we're simply doing what Scripture tells us to do. In fact, Acts 17 says, Paul says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's our call. Christians share the gospel saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, and you'll be saved. Do I know how God's sovereignty is at work in all that? I have no idea. And I don't have to. I can still do, and you can still do what, what the disciples did in Acts 1. You can do what Jesus told you to do. Do we know how that's all going to work out? Of course not. But he does. We're means by which his sovereignty is being brought to pass. So believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. So that's the second one. The third one is God determines how you serve him. God determines how you serve him. This is Acts 1.24. You remember Judas had betrayed Jesus and he'd hung himself and the disciples in those early days before the Spirit comes, the disciples had said, hey, Judas checked out and we're short a man. You know, it's kind of like a basketball team. You've got to have the right number. They say, hey, we've we got to replace Judas. So of all the guys that had gone around, they said, there's two guys that we think one of them is the right one. So they cast lots and they say, 
Uh, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Show which of these two guys you chose to fulfill Judas' role, to be that apostle. Jesus had chosen the 12 apostles originally. They didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. He says that again in John's gospel. Well, here they say they pray and they say, Lord, you've chosen one of them. You just show us which one the choice is. And it's Matthias that God chose to serve him as an apostle. Matthias didn't choose that. God chose that for him. Matthias would be the 12th. In Acts 9, uh, 3 through 15, this is uh, Saul of Tarsus' conversion. And you remember he's filled with hatred and venom and he's going to go get those dirty low-down Jews who were believing in Jesus up in Damascus. And and, uh, God knocks him down. Saul didn't choose to get saved. God knocks him down and says, you're mine, and go up to the city, and I'll I'll send somebody to tell you what to do. And so in that city, you remember there's a a faithful disciple named Ananias, and God shows up somehow to Ananias and says, hey, Saul of Tarsus is in this place, this city, your city, in this house, on this street, you go and talk to him. And Ananias is like, oh, Lord, I need to talk to you about this. Do you, do you know who this is? Do you know what he's like? Do you know what he does? But what does God say? God says to Ananias, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul of Tarsus was chosen by God to be the key apostle to the Gentiles. Saul of Tarsus didn't choose that role. God saved him, and God says, this is how you are going to serve me. Guys, this is straight out of Jeremiah. If you read Jeremiah 1 later today, it's a startling passage, because in Jeremiah 1, 5, God tells a young, timid Jewish boy, he says, "Um, before your birth, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He tells Jeremiah, you don't have a choice, you're mine. You're my prophet, and you will be my prophet to the nations, and that's the way it is. And then he, he fortifies Jeremiah because he says, people are going to oppose you. They're not going to like you. They're not going to like what you say, but no one will be able to overcome you. So you're my man, and before you were born, and before you had a will to say yes or no, I've already determined how you are going to serve me. You're my spokesman to the nations, Jeremiah 1. Uh, let's see, I'm going to pass over a couple of these just to make sure I'm okay for time. Acts 15, uh, Peter says, God made a choice. God chose me initially to give the the Gentiles the gospel. Acts 20, verse 28, the Holy Spirit made the, the elders, the leadership of the church in Ephesus. It was the Holy Spirit, Paul says, that appointed you. So we say God not only calls us in salvation, but he appoints how we serve him. He appoints the means by which we serve him. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, The same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, apportions to each one individually as he wills. The whole, you don't decide what your spiritual gift and enablement is. God does. The Holy Spirit apportions as it pleases him. So you and I come to faith, and God the Holy Spirit says, this is what I'm giving you, and this is what you're going to serve me with, with these spiritual gifts, these spiritual enablings. God determines how we serve him. Guys, this also includes things like single or married, with children or without children, by one spiritual gift or another. 
God determines how we serve him. The only question is, are we serving as God has determined for us? Are we using the gifts, whatever it is, this, I'm talking spiritual gifts, sort of ministry in the church or out of the church, but this applies to everything. Are we serving God with the skills, the assets, the abilities, the capabilities that God has given us? That's the thing, because he's given us certain ways, ways, means by which he means us to serve him. So God determines how we serve him. God also determines where we serve him. This is Acts 7, verse 2 and 3. This is Stephen's defense to the Jewish leadership. He's been hauled before them. And and one of the things he says right away is, he shares a lot of their history. And he says, you remember way back when God appeared to our forebear Abram and he told him, hey, you've been living where your fathers lived, but I want you to leave that place and I want you to go to another place. I'll show you. And that's what we call the land of promise, you know, the east end of the Mediterranean Ocean area. So Stephen starts by saying God wanted our forebear Abram to leave this certain geography, modern-day Babylon, Iraq. (laughs) What century, what millennium am I in? (laughs) Modern-day, yeah, Iraq, sorry. And come up in the Fertile Crescent and then end up there where the modern state of Israel is today. God wanted Abram and his heirs in that bit of geography, Acts 8, Acts 7. Uh, Also, though, if you go down to Acts 8, verses 26 and 39. Now, this is wild. If this ever happens to you, tell me, okay? If this story ever reflects your reality, please tell me. We'll write a book. So, Philip is one of the deacons, and he's a godly guy. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's the one that shared the gospel initially with the Samaritans, okay? So God tells him, uh, Philip, rise up, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip, I've got a job for you, and it requires you to leave the place you're at, get on this road that's going southwest from Jerusalem down towards the city of Gaza on the coast. And so Philip does as he's bidden, and he gets on that road physically. He's running or jogging or walking or whatever, but he gets on the road. All he's doing is what he knows God wants him to do. He doesn't know why he's in this new place until there's a chariot, and he hears a guy reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he suddenly, the light goes on. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is who I'm supposed to meet with. So he goes up. It's a eunuch from Ethiopia. He's in the chariot, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how can I unless someone explains? I don't know, you know. I'm a Gentile. I've got a scroll here, but I don't know what it means. And so from Isaiah 53, which is all about Jesus, Philip explains the gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of this guy. He was the suffering servant. He died for your sins. And the eunuch believes on the spot. Who'd have thunk? The eunuch believes on the spot and gets baptized, okay? So we know God wanted Philip to go from one geographic spot to another because he wanted him to engage this man. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, now catch this, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. What did that look like? See, on the way down, he walks or jogs or runs or whatever down to the road. But when he's done at the place God wanted him, the text says the Spirit of the Lord carried him away. This is like Star Trek. I was one place, and now I'm another. And I didn't do anything to get there. 
the eunuch saw him no more, went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azotus. He's in another town. I don't know what that was like. You know, he, he stops, he looks around, and where am I? You know, this is like Rip Van Winkle. I woke up, where am I? When, when am I? Where am I? Oh, I'm in Azotus. And so he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns along the coast till he got back home to Caesarea. Now that's wild, but that's, he served God where God wanted him. Something a little less dramatic, but along the same line is in Acts 16. And this is probably the best known passage about God ordaining locations or geography or where we serve in Acts 16. This is Paul's missionary journey. And they're going through south and central modern-day Turkey. But the text says this. This is verses 6, 7, and then 9 and 14. The text says, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They were forbidden by the... What did this look like? What did this sound like? The text doesn't say. But all we know is this. They're taking the gospel through that area of modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor. And there's a lot of sort of ethnic and geographical boundaries within that one country today. But so they're saying, oh, we'll go this way. And somehow the Holy Spirit says, no, you won't. You're not going that way. So they've got a plan. We'll turn right. The Spirit says, no, you won't. Uh, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Some of this is not clear, by the way, but it's likely modern-day Istanbul. We'd go up to, that, uh, to what would have been Byzantium back in the day. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, okay, the Holy Spirit said, don't go that way. Okay, well, we'll go this way. And the Holy Spirit again says, no, you won't. You're not going there. That's not where I want you. It says, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and that's a town on the northwest coast of modern Turkey. And Paul has a vision. A man in Macedonia says, uh, come over and help us. Verse 10 says, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They finally get it. God says no. God says no. God says yes, because God wanted them in what's modern-day Greece, Macedonia, not in those other areas. Why did God want them there then? Don't know. But that was his, God was in control, and that's where he wanted them. So he forbid them from doing some things. He got them to the place he wanted them. Acts 18.9, this might be a good one for people. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. This one has been helpful to me. Uh, Paul is in the city of Corinth. And, you know, he gets hammered every place he goes, right? He shares the gospel. Everybody gets mad at Paul. Saul, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's jailed, you know, you crazy. Well, he's here and he's getting threatened again, so he's ready to leave town. But God somehow shows up again and says, don't leave. Um, he says, don't be afraid, go on speaking, don't be silent. I'm with you and no one will attack you for harm I have many in this city. So, so Paul is in Corinth for a year and a half instead of having just a very short duration and running to another place. God says, no, for now, this is where I want you. I want you in this city, in Corinth. You're going to serve me here. Acts 20, uh, verse 22. Uh, Paul is talking to some of his friends and he tells them this. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem because I have to. Because, and again, he doesn't explain what does this look like. He's, it's like the Holy Spirit is pushing me. 
nudging me, pulling me, telling me one way or another that I have to go to Jerusalem. Now he says, all I know is that bonds and affliction await me there. That's all I know. I'm going where God has told me to go. I know that's where he wants me and I know trouble's coming. And all these other friends of his say, don't go, don't do it, don't do it. Why? Because bonds and affliction await you in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm ready to die there. I know that's where God wants me. So I have to go. That's where the Spirit's taking me. That's where I've got to go. Um, in Jerusalem, he's threatened with assassination. God says, this is Acts 23, 11, Don't worry, you must testify also in Rome. Now, this is interesting. If you think about the, uh, the group in Montana that gets arrested and they're in prison, they're having conversations they never dreamed up. They're meeting people they would never have met. They're sharing the gospel with, with opportunities they would never have envisioned. Well, Saul, when he gets to Jerusalem, do you remember the Jews put out a hit on him? Do you remember? There's a group of 40 people. They're not going to eat or drink until they've assassinated Paul. And so really what God does is he puts Paul in protective custody and he preserves his life through this arrest. And Paul's in prison in Caesarea for two years before he goes to Rome and prison in Rome. But what does God bring out of that again? God says, I want you in Jerusalem. And you're going to be here in prison for a while. And then you're going to be in prison in Rome. You must go to Rome. You must be, you're going to get there too. What does he do out of those prisons? Well, he preserves his life. And guys, the prison epistles were all written because Paul was where God wanted him in a prison in Rome. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. We have those epistles because they were written from the place God wanted Paul. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says this. We only boast, and he's not trying to be a braggart. He just says we're talking about what God's given us to do. We only boast with regard to the area of influence God assigned us. Paul says God has assigned us a sphere of influence, and that includes geography. That includes where we live. Do you know it's important where you live today? It's important the street you live on. It's important the house you live in, the neighbors you have. God's in control of where you live, where you go to church, where you work. He's in charge of the geography that sort of is a major part of your life. That's where God wants us in particular places. That's part of his control and his sovereign will. By the way, if you're headed in the wrong direction, read the Old Testament book of Jonah. Because if you're not in the place God wants you, he can change your mind and he can get you back where he wants you. That's Jonah. Last thing is God determines how long we serve him on the earth. God determines how long we serve him. Acts 12, 1 through 11 um, tells us very briefly with no explanation. Uh, Herod slays James, uh, John's brother, just has him executed. And he imprisons Peter. And God allows James to die the day Herod wants to execute him. But he miraculously delivers Peter for many more years of ministry. And God was, God was in charge. God was in control of when James was executed. And of course, later, when Paul is executed and when Peter are executed. But God determined that. They didn't. Peter didn't decide, I'm the guy that lives. An angel leads him miraculously out of prison. This wasn't his doing. This was God saying, I'm not done with you. Your life's not over. Acts 27, verses 22 through 25, on board a ship, 
There's a terrible storm. Everybody's afraid they're going to crash and wreck and all die. And Paul tells the folks on board, he says, uh, um, an angel appeared to me and said, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. You're not going to die. And he said, oh, and by the way, God's granted you all those who sail with you. No one on this ship is going to die. It doesn't matter how bad the storm is, no one's going to die from this ship or this wreck. Psalm 139, 16 says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before you were born, before you were gleaming your parents' or grandparents' or great-grandparents' eyes, God had already ordained the number of days you have on this earth. Job 14, 5, His days are determined. The number of His months is with you. You have appointed His limits, and He can't pass. Guys, you're not going to live a day, an hour, or a moment longer than God wants you on this earth. Not going to happen. There's some other verses on your study sheet. Let me close with Ecclesiastes 8.8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. No man has power. God's in control of the length of your life. This should give us this sense, too, of uh, uh, being invincible in this sense. Uh, you know, Psalm 23, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I don't, I'm not afraid. Well, why? Well, because God's with me. But for the Christian, we can participate in things that may be dangerous and we can do so with confidence knowing God has already ordained the length of days I have on earth. And I, and I don't say this stupid, right? I'm not talking about taking stupid chances, doing stupid things. Christians can afford to be brave and to have courage because we know Our life is going to be exactly the length God's determined. We're not going to check out early. You remember Jesus says, no one can take my life. Now, Jesus is a little different than you and me. He's got his own life in his own hands. No one can take my life, I lay it down. Well, we may not have the power to lay our own life down according to our will, but God does. And he has said, your life is safe until I say it's over. So for Christians, there should be this huge sense of confidence that my life is in the Father's hand. You remember John 10? Jesus says, you're in my hand. My hand's in the Father's hand. Your life is safe in Christ with the Father until he says, Junior, it's time to come home. God is initiating and saving. He's determining how we serve him, where we serve him, and how long we serve him. The church age, the story of Acts, is continuing today. This is still the same dynamics. Jesus is at work in the world, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit through his disciples. That is your story and mine. That is the story of the church. The fact that God is sovereign, that he's absolutely in control of our lives, should be a comfort and encouragement and a motivator. In times of peace or trouble, jailed or free, here or there, in living or dying, God is lovingly, graciously, perfectly in control of our lives, ultimately making us more like Christ and in his church, ultimately perfecting a bride suitable for the Lord Jesus. So when we say or sing, God is in control, we don't just mean back then. We don't just mean back in the day when the book of Acts was being written. We mean today. We mean in everything. We mean God's sovereignty covers every element of your life and everybody you know. So as those who know God is in control, guys, Christians should have confidence, we should have joy, we should have peace, we should be able to invest in life like no one else because we know who we serve, 
He's the initiator. We know he's called us. We know he's equipped us in how to serve. We know he's placed us in certain places to serve him. And we know we'll be there as long as he says we, we should be. This is a good thing. God in control is a great thing. Well, stand with me, if you would, and read from Isaiah 46. I've parsed this just slightly. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. Read with me. Remember the former things of old. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose.